Good morning, everybody. It's great to be back with you. Um, I uh, really love preaching here at, uh, at True Life and uh, always get a uh, great response from all of us. Um, let's just take a minute, if we can, to um, just be quiet before the Lord and uh, welcome his presence with us. I know we've already been in the Lord's presence, um, but just to have a sense, um, just uh, I need his presence as I bring uh, the word. So let's just be quiet and then I'll pray. And we welcome you, Holy Spirit, to this place, to our hearts, to our minds. We pray, Father God, that you would uh, just now take the words that you've laid on my heart, Lord, anything that is of you, I pray that you would just, uh, just press them, impress these words to our hearts. Lord, whatever's of me, I just pray that it would fall away. And uh, Lord, we just uh, welcome you, Lord, to do your work in our midst today through the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start uh, today's message by asking a question. Um, and it's just a pretty simple question. What is a real Christian? What is a real Christian? And Christian. And um, there's a few slide. There's a slide that I created. You know that has, I think, some varieties of what people think about when they think of the word Christian. They hear the word Christian. You know, some people think that a Christian is a is a patriotic, Bible thumping, uh, angry person. Um, in fact, that's a caricature that uh, I think the world is kind of painting um, for of what a Bible-believing Christian is today. Or sometimes some people may think that a Christian is, you know, a cool dude who has the uh, Jesus wear, the Jesus-branded sweatshirts and hats and things like that. Uh, you may think that a Christian is somebody who is like really fervent in worship. You know, a Christian is somebody who, when they are with a real Christian, is somebody who when they are worshiping, they lift their hands, they close their eyes, maybe the tears stream down their face. That's a real Christian. Uh, or maybe you think that a, a real Christian is kind of a, a monkish kind of a person, a person who spends all of their time um, praying, reading the word, um, going on retreats, uh, just focusing their attention on, uh, on going deeper in terms of their spiritual experience. Or perhaps you may think that a Christian is like on that bottom, uh, that bottom picture is a person who does good. Uh, they feed the hungry. They take care of the poor. Uh, they um, are concerned about justice. Uh, and so all of these things are ideas that ha people have about what it means to be a Christian. But we're going to look at a passage of Scripture today that I think really encapsulates for us what it means to really be a follower of Jesus, what it really means to be a Christian. And the passage grows out of a conversation that, um, that Jesus had with a theologian of his day. It's Matthew chapter 22, verse 20 through 24 through 34 through 40. I'm not going to read that passage again for the sake of, um, of time, but we're going to be referring back to it um, and through the message probably read the whole thing again. Um, but this passage is just a very simple dialogue between Jesus and a teacher of the law is what this passage of Scripture calls him. Some of the uh, other parallel passages call him a scribe, which is really kind of the same thing. 
Uh, and so let's take a look at, at this conversation. But as we do, let's take a look, first of all, at the setting of this conversation, because that's very, very important for us to understand the conversation itself. So let's look at the scribe's question, um, which is introduced for us in verse 34. And verse 34 lets us know what prompted this conversation. What prompted this conversation were debates that religious leaders were having with the Lord Jesus. And if you think about the timing as you've been working through the book of Matthew, we're getting close to the cross. We all know the story of Jesus, I'm sure, even those of us who are you know, more seeking-oriented. Um, that's a part of the story we know, that Jesus died on the cross, and we're getting close to the cross. And as we're getting close to the cross, the religious leaders are getting disturbed about the fact that Jesus has gathered this following, and they have heard him make explicit claims about the fact that he is the Messiah, and so they decide that they need to trip him up and find some way to accuse him of, um, of being a traitor so that he can be turned over to Rome. And so uh, we have a couple of um, different characters that we read in this passage of Scripture kind of leading up to, uh, leading up to the passage we're looking at. And one of, the, one of the, the whole section is introduced with this word. It says, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They laid plans to trap him in his words. And so we read uh, in the beginning, in part of the section, about a debate that he had with the Pharisees and the Herodians. Uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians were, you know, the super strict followers of the law. They were the, the ones who wore the tassels and the ones who wore the phylacteries. They were super um, observant of God's law. And, um, and so they came to Jesus and the question that they were using to entrap Jesus in terms of his relationship with, uh, with the political authorities of the day was, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then uh, we read about a group of people called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were people who were more loyal to Rome. And they, were, uh, they had adopted the Greek culture of the day. And they asked Jesus a question that they hope is going to put him in trouble with uh, the more conservative religious people of the day. And so the question they have um, for Jesus has to do with the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. And, uh, and the scripture tells us that in both instances, the people were amazed, amazed at Jesus's answer to them. They were amazed. They, they heard the wisdom. They heard, you know, how he basically... Uh, got out of the trap that the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees had laid to him, laid for them. Um, and this passage uh, seems to indicate that the religious leaders were sensing that their plan to trap Jesus had failed, and uh, up to this point at least. And so um, they're going to take one more shot at it. And what they do is they send one of their big guns, one of the theologians of the day. Uh, not just a Pharisee, but the scripture tells us an expert in, a, in the law, uh, an, a person who knew the Torah and the interpretation of the Torah backwards and forwards, a teacher of the law. And uh, they're thinking to themselves, surely we can trip Jesus up with his question 
And so we read in verse 34 and 35 these words. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, one of them, an expert in the law, and tested him with this question. And uh, so the expert drew Jesus into one of the primary questions that the theologians of the day debated about. And the question is, out of all the 613 commands in the Torah, which is the first and most important, or which is the greatest of all of those commandments, all 613? Now, um, before we, we move on from, from this, I, I want to just share with you what the Lord laid on my heart, and this may be for somebody, uh, I don't know, um, but um, I know that there are some people here in this church who have a, a, a passion for evangelism, a, a passion for sharing your faith. And one of the things that we need to know when we share our faith, when we tell the story of what Jesus has done for us, is we need to know our audience. And we need to know, is that audience a, a, a sincere audience? Or is it an audience that is seeking to you know, get into a fight? get into a, a debate. There's some people who ask us questions about our faith out of sincerity. They're drawn by God. They want to know the answer. However, there's some who ask us questions to trip us up, to get us into an argument, to trap us with our answers. And this seems to be the case for this scribe. That's what he was trying to do. He was not sincerely asking Jesus uh, for information. He was, again, part of this plan to see whether we can get Jesus um, in trouble. And so Jesus answers uh, wisely again to the scribe, and uh, he does so by summarizing the two great commandments in the Torah about love. The two great commandments in the Torah about love. And the, the Torah, he says, can be summarized by two very important thoughts. The first is that we love God. The second is that we love our neighbor. Jesus replied, it says in, uh, in, verse, in the verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, I want to let you know that these were not new things that Jesus was saying. He was quoting from two passages from the Torah, one from Deuteronomy, one from the book of Leviticus, and uh, this is how many of, the, many of the scribes would categorize the two tablets of the law. Um, how many people here went to catechism when you were young? Anybody? You made your CCD, a couple people here made their CCDs or went to a catechism class. Well, you know, often we teach young children to learn right here, the Ten Commandments. Uh, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And uh, the scribes said that these, this tablet had to do with things having to do with the love of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 5, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, and with all your strength. And then 
Um, and then the second part of the tablet, honor thy father and thy mother, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. These, this part of the tablet has to do with the love, our love for neighbor, how we interact with other human beings. Um, and this comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Uh, which basically says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a, that's, that's a quote. So Jesus was actually quoting, not verbatim, by the way, which is important, but he was quoting two scriptures from the Mosaic law to answer this scribe's question. And, uh, and so um, as we, what we're going to do, first of all, is I just want to take a moment. We kind of want to look at some of the details because um, although this is a very simple answer that the Lord gives, some of the details of his answer really uh, are impactful for us. And, and the first uh, detail comes to mind from comparing the two versions of uh, that first thing that Jesus said. The book of Deuteronomy says, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But Jesus says, he says this, he says, love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. I think he did that on purpose. I think he did that on purpose. And, uh, and so what's the point? Why does Jesus use the word mind? Why is the mind so important in loving God? Well, one of the reasons that uh, he shared this with the, the, um, the scribe is because many of the Jewish people of the day thought that, you know, uh, my love for God is strictly shown through my obedience to the commands of God. You know, if I, if I eat the right food, and if I keep away from unclean people, and if I keep the Sabbath, uh, and all those different rules and regulations of, uh, of the Torah, that's how I demonstrate that I love God. And, uh, and what Jesus wants to know is that it's not just about rules, it's about our conception and what we think of God and what we know of God. And uh, so, uh, and the other part of this is that the Lord wants us to, to, uh, to know that uh, we need to think correctly about God. We need to know God. We need to know him, know about him. And so that's why we spend time in his word. That's why we spend time with the Lord. And, you know, Jesus' uh, words foreshadow the words of the Apostle Paul. And I'll just share a couple, of, um, a couple of scriptures with you, but I could share many more. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, set your mind on things above. And then in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so I want to just explore just a little bit more with you why our mind is so important for loving the Lord Jesus, for loving the Lord our God, I should say. Why our mind is so important for loving the Lord our God? Well, what I think it grows out of is the fact that our attention is an indicator of what we love. Our attention is an indicator of our love and it causes our love to grow toward the object of our attention. 
Dr. Kirk Thomas is a, um, is a writer in, this, in the field of spiritual formation, and he has a wonderful book called The Anatomy of the Soul. And he says in that book, when, whenever we act on our world, whether we intentionally or automatic, whether intentionally or automatically, we employ the function of the mind called attention. Attention can be considered the ignition key of the mind. A vast array of our mental and physical actions follow what we attend to. So the Lord is saying, when we are to love God with all of our mind, we are to use our mind to attend to God. We're to use our mind to attend to God. Now, thinkers of the, of the ages have commented on this idea. Uh, one of the Stoic philosophers, a man by the name of Epicetus, he said, what we give our attention to is what becomes most important to us. This is a non-Christian philosopher, but you know, I believe that all truth is God's truth, and this seems to be uh, echoing what Jesus is saying here. A more contemporary philosopher said, tell me what you pay attention to, and I will tell you who you are. Tell me what you pay attention to, and I will tell you who you are. So as Christians, we can go one step further and say that what we give our attention to is an indicator of what we love and what we worship. And in a sense, we become like what we worship. N.T. Wright, uh, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, said, you become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object you worship. So let me ask you a question. It's a question that I ask myself. What am I paying attention to? Do you notice it? What are you paying attention to? In fact, uh, this fellow who I was mentioned earlier has a spiritual exercise, and his spiritual exercise is to keep with you a little notepad uh, for a couple of days, and during the day, uh, every couple of hours, take your note, notepad and write down what you find yourself paying attention to. I think it will be an amazing, it's an amazing uh, exercise. And there are so many things in this world that draw our attention. Uh, television, uh, the phone, um, politics, uh, worries, anxiety, all these different things take us away from this primary commandment of loving God with all of our mind. So uh, one of the, maybe this may be something that you can bring home from this message, to spend some time thinking, using your mind to pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Because what you pay, what you give your attention to, what you tend to is, how, is what you are going to become. Another thing that I want to note from, these past, from this passage is that these two commands are inseparable from each other. Now, I did a lot of work um, on exegesis, you know, reading different commentaries, working on the scripture, uh, and uh, looking at the Greek language and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and there's some people feel and make 
make a point out of this passage that what is most important is loving God, that loving your neighbor is secondary. Well, guess what? I don't agree with that. I think that we know this because Jesus says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So both loving God and loving our neighbor is how we fulfill the law. It's interesting to note that in the Gospel of Mark, the story includes this response from uh, the scribe to Jesus. Um, and in his response, he ties the two commands even closer together. He says, well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, he quotes it the right way, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings or sacrifice. What we do in terms of our affection towards God, our tending towards God, our attention towards God, and what we do in terms of our love for our neighbor, uh, these two things uh, are more important than religion, religious ritual. They're more important than praise and worship songs, although we can use praise and worship songs to express our love for God. They're more important, really, than, um, than you know, sitting in church and hearing the Word, although we can grow in our love for God by hearing the Word. Uh, but the man uh, probably had in mind, since he was a scribe and a theologian, he probably had some of the pro passages from the prophets in mind. Here are just a few. Isaiah chapter 1 says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Verse 13, stop bringing meaningless offerings. And then verse 16, wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. Amos chapter 5 says this. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Boy, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard to them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your heart. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's one of the great verses of the Old Testament in terms of how we are to be in connection to our fellow man. Micah chapter 6, verse 6 through 8 says... With, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow before the, the exalted God? Shall I bring before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or in ten thousands of rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before our God. And uh, the point that Jesus is making is that it is impossible to love God without loving our neighbor, and it is impossible 
to truly love our neighbor without loving God. The two go hand in hand. The two commands are inseparable. These two commands are inseparable from each other. Jesus says all the law and the prophet hang on them. Central to everything we are and everything we do is love. Paul said this remarkable verse. And if it's, it's, a, if it, it's part of one verse, if you, want to remem- if you want to memorize something that will be in front of your mind to say to, me, to say to yourself, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does a real Christian look like? Here's a great verse for you to take to heart. It is the verse, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. You want to be a good Christian? You want to do the right thing? You want to, uh, you want to uh, obey God? You want to please God? Then what we are to do is we are to love. We are to love God, and out of our love for God should grow authentic, real love for other human beings. But that's easier said than done, right? Because we are fallen, sinful people, and uh, I want to confess to you that, you know, sometimes I, I do good to a neighbor, uh, or I do good for something, and I, I think to myself, wow, that person didn't even say thank you to me. That person didn't even acknowledge, you know, my great sacrifice. Uh, and sometimes I think about that with the Lord. Lord, look at my devotional life. Look at my prayer life. Look at the, look at the disciplines, that, the spiritual disciplines that I'm engaging in. Look at my fasting. Lord, do you love me more because of these things? Am, aren't I showing you my love? Don't, aren't, aren't, aren't I binding you to have to answer my prayers? It's easier said than done. And this is what I want us to know, is that it is impossible to love God and to love our neighbors perfectly because we are fallen. And it is also impossible to love God and love our neighbor consistently, but we are to, we are to bolt onto ourselves every day the love of God and the love of our neighbor. When we find our attention being distracted by other things, we are to bring our attention and to tend to the Lord. The love that God is asking us to exercise is not something that we work up. It is not something that we white-knuckle and we try real hard to do. It is love from a person. Love from the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the great miracles that we have as Christians is something that theologians call union with Christ. But simply what that means is that when we become a Christian, Jesus Christ himself actually takes up residence in our life. It's not just a, it's not just a theological thought. It's a reality that if you know Jesus as your Savior, Jesus himself is living in us, walking through us, and so his love can flow out of us. That love that we need is not from doing, it's from a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're part of the kingdom of God because of what we know, not because of what we know, 
or do. It's because of the love of Jesus and because of what he has done for us. Listen to a couple of scriptures about this. John, 1 John chapter 4 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. God is the source of love. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only, his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so if we are to love God and we are to love one another, the first thing is we need to experience for ourselves the reality of God's love. His love needs to be poured out into our hearts. It, it is available for us, available to every single one of us. Because did you notice what this verse says? It, said, it didn't say, I'm going I'm to pour out my love to good people. I'm going to pour out my love to religious people. I'm, I'm going to pour out my love to moral people. It says, I'm going to pour out my love on sinners. This is how God loved us when we were yet sinners. Are there any sinners in this room? Raise your hand. Then you are qualified to receive the love of God. You're qualified to receive the love of God. John chapter 15 says, My command is this, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for his friend. And of course, he's, he's talking about his own sacrifice. Jesus to his disciples saying that I'm going to demonstrate my love to you by laying down my life to you, for you, to show you how much I love you. And then Romans chapter 5, uh, this verse, it says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're a sinner here today, you're qualified to be a recipient of the love of God. And when God's love is really received by you, not just, uh, not just intellectually, although we are to love God with all of our mind, uh, but that in the deepest part of our soul, we know we, that we know that we know that we are loved. And even we feel the manifest love of God in, a, in an actual physical way sometimes. When that is true, then we can send our love back to God, and we can be channels of God's love for one another. I know that many of us probably have seen videos on YouTube. You probably have to be dead if you haven't heard about the Asbury outpouring uh, that took place in, in Asbury. It's actually kind of uh, moved out of Asbury College. A lot of people say they shut it down. That's not true. They just commissioned uh, the students to go out and to spread it to other places. Um, but the fellow who started, um, who was the preacher, didn't start it, the Holy Spirit started it. The fellow who was the preacher uh, at the beginning of the Asbury outpour in the chapel service where the Holy Spirit began to break out is an alliance, alliance worker by the name of Zach Mearcreaves. He's actually um, part-time a, a soccer coach at the college. Uh, but he's also an envisioned leadership coordinator. He is... Um, 
you know, one of these official workers that we send our money to. Uh, he's he's um, part of our family, the Christian, uni the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And I, I want to ask the two questions that he asked at the conclusion, at the beginning of his message, and then at the conclusion of his message. And I would like these questions to land on us. The first question is, do you love me? That's not God's question, that was his question to the students. Do you love me? Chris, do you love me? I love you, brother. I know, and I know you love me too. Look at the person next to you. Do you love that person? Do you love that person in that unconditional, laying down your life way that Jesus talks about? And then at the conclusion of his message, and if you have the chance, it's all over the internet, you, I would really encourage you to take a look at it. Um, uh, there's a couple of interesting asides that I could go, but I'm not gonna go down that road. Then he concluded these, his message with these words. Become the love of God by experiencing the love of God. Become the love of God by experiencing the love of God. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that we are in a world that needs the supernatural love of God? Yes. It doesn't take long to read about the mess. It doesn't take long to read about the, to learn about the hardships. It doesn't take long to read about the divisions that we're experiencing as a culture and as a country. Our challenge is to become the love of God by experiencing the love of God. I'm gonna ask Pastor Chris to come up and invite us um, to, to receive prayer today, to receive the love of God. If you need a fresh touch, of the love of God today. And then the last words, and this is really the theme of what God seems to be doing in Asbury and what I believe he's going to start pouring out in other places. The last words that he spoke were, renew us by your love. The Lord can do that for you today. The Lord can meet you so that you know that you are truly loved by God and that you can be transformed by that love in such a way that your love flows back to him and flows out of you to love others, which Jesus says is what all of the law and the prophets hang on. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Bill. And I do love you, too. Uh, can I have the band come on up here? And can we have a few members of our prayer team be available down front? A couple on each side would be great. A couple men, a couple women. We're going to sing a few songs about God's love for us. Can we stand, too? Here's what I was thinking about when, when Bill was finishing up. Um... I was looking at this cross down here, representing Jesus' sacrifice for me. And here's what I know happens to me. I can gaze upon that cross as a reminder of his love towards me, a sinner. And I can be just so in awe of his love towards me. 
And my eyes are fixed upwards at him. And then my phone can go off. I can get a text. I can get an email. I can start to notice other people. And what often takes my eyes off of God's love for me is the lack of love that other people have around me. Ain't that ironic? How could he do? How could she act like? How could they not know they're so bitter? And then I start to get distracted by the lack of love in other people that I become judgmental. Sometimes judgmental of people that I think are too judgmental. And my eyes are on other people instead of on the love of Jesus for me. And then I'm not overflowing with love towards them. And I need to repent of having my attention too fixed on other people's behavior or attitudes. And then another thing that takes my eyes off of God's love towards me is sometimes my own shame. Other people might point out my shortcomings and failures and sins. And instead of taking what they say and saying, Here, Jesus, what's true and what is true, fix I kind of focus on me. Oh, man. And I start to... That leads to an irritability that oozes out on other people. And I need to repent of being too focused on my own shortcomings and put my eyes back on Jesus. And so what we're going to do as we sing right now, as we sing these songs, I'm going to invite you to come down. If you need prayer for God's Spirit to fill you with a reminder. That's what he does. In a nutshell, the Holy Spirit's job is to remind you and testify with your spirit that you are loved by God. And so if you need that reminder, whether it's because your eyes are too fixed on other people's shortcomings or your eyes are too fixed on your own shortcomings, I invite you to come be prayed for at any point. Pastor Bill, would you be available as well?